News. WTBN Pinellas Park. Up next is Verse by Verse, sponsored by Verse by Verse Ministries. There are some who just advocate rebellion if if government is ungodly. And you know what the image of the evangelical church is today, at least in our country, is that of political protesters, people who criticize and insult those in political authority over us. We have become, in my opinion, a political force. And in the process, we have become arrogant right-wing coalition, blasting every politician who opposes our views, whether they be moral views or just political views, which the Bible doesn't even deal with. The attitude toward the government by many people who call themselves Christians today is radically different than what the Bible teaches it should be. We will begin in the next few moments to look at the differences here on Verse by Verse. Our teacher is Pastor Steve Kreloff of Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida. Our text is Romans 13, beginning in verse 1. It's a passage that many people don't seem to have ever read. Let's see what it says. Here's Pastor Steve. If you turn, please, to Romans chapter 13. Romans chapter 13. Romans 12 is the foundation for everything after that portion of Scripture in the rest of uh, the book of Romans. Romans 13, 1 through 7. Very critical portion of Scripture. Very, very clear, I believe. Very straightforward. Now we'll look at it. Let every person be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, he who resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For he or it is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid. For he or it does not bear the sword for nothing. For he is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath upon the one who practices evil. Wherefore, it is necessary to be in subjection not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. For because of this, you pay taxes. For rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. Render to all what is due them, tax to whom tax is due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. It was on the Wednesday just before our Lord's crucifixion when the Pharisees and the Herodians decided to come to Christ. The Pharisees and Herodians were two groups of people who lived in Palestine at the time of our Lord, and quite frankly, they hated each other. They were enemies of each other. And the reason being, they were enemies over their political views. The Pharisees were anti-Herod. Now, Herod was the ruler in Israel at the time. He was not a Jew. He was an Edomite. Rome had set him up, had allowed his family to exist in that area, And the Pharisees, being opposed to Roman rule, were obviously opposed to Herod. They rebelled against submitting to any kind of Gentile rulership, and that meant Herod, and that meant Rome. The Herodians, on the other hand, were pro-Herod, as their name would imply, Herodians in favor of Herod. They were a political party, and we don't know a whole lot about them, 
but we do know that they were a political party that was in support of Herod. And they were very loyal to Rome. Now, the Pharisees were anti-Roman rule. The Herodians were pro-Roman rule. Uh, that made them enemies of each other. But there was one occasion in which they decided to put aside their political differences and unite. And they did this in order to trap the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you'll turn to Matthew chapter 22, you'll see how this took place. They decided to come together over one issue, and that was the issue of getting rid of Jesus. In Matthew 22, these two groups, one primarily religious, the Pharisees, though because of that it had political implications, and another, the Herodians, who were not religious but were totally political. They united in a single cause to trap Jesus with the view to eliminating him. Now, in, verses, in verse 15, it begins, Then the Pharisees went and counseled together how they might trap him in what he said. And they sent their disciples to him. Now, the reason they didn't go themselves is because Jesus had just condemned them. And so they sent basically their spies. They didn't believe the Lord Jesus was God, and so they thought they could trick him. They would send their disciples as if you could put anything over on the Lord, as if he wouldn't know who these men were. So they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. So you have the Pharisees, basically, and you have the Herodians. And this is what they said. Teacher, we know that you are truthful and teach the way of God in truth and defer to no one, for you are not partial to any. Now, this is called flattery. This was buttering him up. And in essence, they were saying, we know that you don't care what the opinions of men are. We know that you don't care what political group says this or that or what religious group. You are going to be true to God. Now, I don't think they believe that because Jesus called them hypocrites. But what they were saying was indeed true. They just didn't believe that. But they were saying to him, your reputation is such that whatever we ask you, you're really not going to skirt the issue. We know that uh, you have the reputation for being straightforward and not caring what anybody says about what you say. And that was true. So they ask him this question. Now, remember, they're, they're trying to trap him. They don't care what he says, except if it traps him. Tell us, therefore, what do you think? Is it lawful to give a poll tax to Caesar or not? From their standpoint, a poll tax was the worst kind of tax. The Pharisees, that is. We'll deal with this more when we get down to verse, verses 6 and 7 in Romans 13, which speaks about paying our taxes. But Rome had all kinds of taxes that they imposed upon the Jewish people, and the one that was hated the most was a poll tax. The poll tax basically was this. You had to pay a tax just for being alive. It was a census tax. Just because you were alive, just because you existed at that time in history, you had to pay a tax for living. Now, the Jews already had enough problems with taxes that Rome imposed upon them. This was the one they hated the most. Just because you took a breath, you woke up in the morning and said, I'm going to live today, you had to pay for it. It was not, you were not paying in, in that case for the services of Rome. You were not paying for their, for their uh, police. You were not paying for their soldiers. You were paying because you lived that day. And they hated that. And so the question is this, is it lawful to give a poll tax to Caesar or not? It was a very hot issue. Now, if our Lord answered that it was right to pay taxes to Rome, then the Jewish people would consider him a traitor. And that was one angle from this. 
But more than that, the Pharisees knew that if he said it was wrong to pay taxes to Rome, then he would be considered an insurrectionist, a rebel, a revolutionist. And they had the Herodians there who would immediately report this to the governing authorities and Jesus would be eliminated. How dare you say that you shouldn't pay taxes to Rome? I mean, every Jew believed that, but no one said that publicly. And so the Pharisees conveniently had the Herodians there. So when the Lord Jesus, who they figured would certainly say, we don't pay our taxes to Caesar. We just worship God. We belong to God, not not Caesar. They thought this would be the end of him. But what does Jesus do? Verse 18 says, but Jesus perceived their malice. And he said, why are you testing me, you hypocrites? And he knew the answer and he called them hypocrites. He knew what they were. He says, show me the coin used for the poll tax. Give me, give me a coin here. And so they brought him a denarius. That was a day's wage. That was a little coin. And he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? Now, every coin had a picture of Caesar. He said, what's the picture on here? And they said to him, Caesar's. Now, he said to them, and, and in weeks to come, by the way, I want to look at this a little more closely, but basically you need to understand where he's coming from. He said to them, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Very, very famous statement. What was he saying? Pay your poll tax. Whose coin is this? Caesar's. Give it back to him. In other words, he was saying, pay your taxes to Caesar and worship God. You belong to God. Give yourself to him. The money belongs to the government. Give it back. It's right to pay a tax. In other words, you have a responsibility to the government and a responsibility to God, which is what the basic point that he was saying. There's more to it than that, but that's basically what he was saying. Give Caesar what's his. The money is his. Got his picture on it. If it had your picture on it, it'd be yours. It has Caesar's picture on it. Give it to him. You belong to God. So give God worship. Now, what Jesus touched on in Matthew chapter 22, the Apostle Paul clarifies and expands in Romans chapter 13. And in Romans 13, Paul brings together these two concepts of how uh, we as believers have a responsibility to God that coincides with our responsibility to government. And what Paul wrote the Roman Christians about their responsibility to civil authorities and governments is the clearest and most direct passage in Scripture, all the word of God, as to where we stand when it comes to the government, no matter what government you're under. Very relevant subject for us today, very relevant, because the church hasn't always responded properly to its government. For 2,000 years, this has been a struggling issue. And it seems today to uh, to be really an important issue for us. There are a lot of Christians today who try to justify civil disobedience because of the unfairness of the government. There are a lot of Christians, and believe me, a lot of Christians, who refuse to pay their taxes because they say it goes to things that we don't believe in, and therefore they believe that they're justified in not paying their taxes. I might just say, before we deal with that whole issue, where people would say, well, our government is so corrupt today, why pay taxes? I, I remind you that the Roman government crucified the Son of God. And Jesus say, said, pay taxes to them, knowing full well that in a matter of, of two days he would be crucified by them. 
But there are Christians who say we shouldn't pay taxes. There are Christians who want to overthrow political authorities. There are Christians who break laws like speeding. Someone said the last part of our body that gets saved is our right foot. (laughs) There are some who would just say it's inconvenient for me to wear a safety belt. I will not do it. And yet the law of the land says now you must wear a safety belt. There are those who say I will not put my child in car seat because I just don't want to do it. It's too much of a hassle. And yet the law of the land says if they're a certain age, you are to do that. There are some who just advocate rebellion if if government is ungodly. And you know what the image of the evangelical church is today, at least in our country, is is that of political protesters, people who criticize and insult those in political authority over us. We have become, in my opinion, a political force. And in the process, we have become... Uh, perceived and not only perceived because we we have this image because we act this way as an arrogant right-wing coalition blasting every politician who opposes our views whether they be moral views or just political views which the bible doesn't even deal with and when we uh, when we ought to be perceived as model citizens bending over backwards to obey and honor the government we are seen as intolerant and rude and is non-supportive of any government authority who dares to disagree with us. We are threatening. We try to intimidate. That's not what the Apostle Paul taught. And quite frankly to me, it looks as if the church has left its teaching of the Bible to enter into politics, and there's just so much resources and manpower and, and energy that we're going to exert. We need to exert it into the spiritual realm. How different Paul taught the Christians at Rome who were right in the center of the Roman Empire and government. He told them what they ought to do in relationship to the state. Now remember the context. After telling these believers at Rome that now that they're saved and they know they're secure, they ought to present themselves to God as living sacrifices. They ought to commit themselves to him. They ought to respond to to themselves with humility. And they ought to respond to others by love. Now, he says, you have a basic responsibility to the government. And we can sum up what that responsibility is. If you're taking notes, there's one word that rings loud and clear in this whole passage, and that is submission. Submission or subjection or obedience or honoring. Submission. So this morning, we want to look at the response of submission. What is to be our response? It is a very, very vital issue. It is one that people are asking questions about, and it is one that the Bible gives us answers to. The response of submission. And really, this this morning, we want to just lay the foundation for our understanding of this whole passage. Paul says, verse 1, let every person be in subjection to the governing authorities. The response of submission. The word subjection It's a military term, which means to rank under, to line up under. It means that you are to be in submission to authority over you. It is the same concept as the home and the church. And in the New Testament, masters and slaves. There was one in authority. There was one who submitted. That's the whole point. And it is the same expression used of wives submitting to husbands, even if they're ungodly of slaves submitting to masters, even if they're ungodly. It is just that concept. Governing authorities. What does he mean in verse 1 by governing authorities? It refers to all government authorities over us. In Paul's day, it meant from the emperor on down to any civil 
government and authority. In our day and age, it would mean, in our country, it would mean the president on down to any uh, government agency, no matter what level they're at. Now, submission to the Roman government, quite frankly, was a tremendously hot issue at the time Paul wrote this. And by the way, that is why he wrote Romans 13, because it was an issue that people needed to get straight, and it's an issue they need to get straight today. What's the background of this? The church at Rome was made up of a lot of Jewish believers. I believe primarily the church was Gentile, but there were certainly many, many Jewish Christians there. During this time in history, Israel was under the political domination of Rome. Although Rome, as we go back and study the history books, we see that Rome basically treated the Jewish people very fairly. They didn't always do that, but they basically treated the Jewish people fairly and, and they were tolerant for their religious practices. The Jews hated to have Rome over them. The Jews rebelled against that. They couldn't stand to have Gentile domination. They hated being in subjection to, to Rome at that time. And they had, a, they had a proof text in the Bible to support their, their hatred. In Deuteronomy, back in the law, in Deuteronomy chapter 18, rather 17, in, verses, in verse 15, we read this. Well, let's look at verse 14. When you enter the land which the Lord your God gives you and you possess it, and live in it, and you say, I will set a king over me like all the nations who are around me. God says, you shall surely set a king over you whom the Lord your God chooses. One from among your countrymen you shall set as king over yourselves. You may not put a foreigner over yourselves who is not your countryman. Well, that was based on the fact that the Jews were going to follow the Lord. They got in this trouble of having Gentile domination because they didn't follow the Lord. And so now they're stuck with the Gentile uh, government's authority over them. And they couldn't stand it. And you know how deep this went? Would you turn to John chapter 8, how deep this hatred and, and attitude of insubordination went towards Rome? I have never seen this before until this week. I have taught John chapter 8. I have thought about it, but I have never seen this until this week. In John chapter 8, verse 31, Jesus therefore was saying to those Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Now they answered him, we are Abraham's offspring, and we have never yet been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you shall become free? Now I remember reading this, studying this, and thinking, what do they need, a, a lesson in history? Of course they had been enslaved. They had been in slavery in Egypt. Babylon took them captive and made them slaves. They were under the domination of Medo-Persian Empire of Greece. And now Rome presently ruled over them. And they say, we've never been in slavery to anybody. Who are they kidding? Well, they didn't need a history lesson. They didn't need Jesus to say, now, now let's go back in your Old Testament and explain to you your history. No, they didn't need that at all. You know what they were saying? They were saying, we may be slaves on the outside, but we have never been enslaved to anybody on the inside. It's like the, the kid who you tell to sit down because he's standing and, he's, and he sits down, but his attitude is, I may be sitting on the outside, but I'm standing on the inside. What they were saying is that, that only, only outwardly, we have submitted to Rome. Inwardly, we hate it. 
And we've never in our hearts internally been in subjection to anybody. And that's what they're really saying. They had never been a slave in heart attitude. They had never been a slave inside. In other words, there is always a spirit of rebellion inwardly. And sometimes that spirit of rebellion came out and it manifested itself. And there was a group that that uh, lived around that time called the Zealots. One of our Lord's disciples was called a Zealot, and he probably came from this this political religious group. It did not mean that they had just zeal. It meant that they were a terrorist group. We hear about terrorism today in the Middle East. It was back then, too. The Zealots were a group that led open revolts against Rome. They weren't just uh, rebelling on the inside. They actually led open revolts and revolutions against Rome. They had a saying, no king but God, no taxes to anyone but God. They openly defied the Roman government. They refused to pay their taxes. They were, they were a terrorist group. They murdered people. They were assassins. They were fanatic nationalists. In fact, there was a nickname given to them. They were called the Dagger Bearers. They wrecked houses. They, they burned crops. They even killed Jews who would dare to honor Rome. The political climate in Israel at the time of Christ was revolution. That's what filled the air. If they didn't openly speak about it for fear of the authorities, it was certainly the attitude that prevailed and what they said behind closed doors. In fact, that's why in John 6, 15, after Jesus feeds the multitude of Galilean Jews and and they're they're thrilled. I mean, free food for everybody. They say, look, we've got the Messiah here. Let's storm Jerusalem and we'll make him king. And the Bible says in John 6, 15, Jesus, knowing that this is their intention to make him king, retreated. I mean, he didn't come to be a political king, not on those terms, not on their terms. He came to be a savior, came to rule in the hearts of men, not to establish an outward structure of government. In fact, revolution and that attitude of the Jewish people, open rebellion became so bad that in in Acts chapter 18, we read about Claudius who had expelled the Jews from Rome. I mean, Claudius Claudius Caesar later got so sick of the Jews' rebellion that for a time period, and apparently it was only a time period, he said, get out of here. I'm tired of your insurrectionist attitude. We're not going to put up with it any, any longer. And eventually Rome refused to take any kind of Jewish rebellion and insubordination, and they crushed Jerusalem in A.D. 70 when they marched in with Titus and the Roman legion. And if you've ever seen the film called Masada, that's what it's all about. The Jews retreated to the fortress of Masada, and it was there that they fought the Romans. And rather, when they knew their doom was was imminent, rather than face Roman punishment and Roman domination, over 900 of them committed suicide. Now, I want you to understand, that was the prevailing attitude of the Jews of Christ's day. That's what he's dealing with. That's what Paul is up against. And the church at Rome is made up of many, many Jewish people that from infancy that has been bred into them. That climate of revolution towards Rome is something that was taught to them. It has been inbred. That spirit of rebellion has been ingrained in them since childhood. But now they're Christians. And somebody's got to tell them that Christians don't do this anymore. Christians don't fight the government. Christians submit to the government. And somebody needs to tell the church today that's what Christians do as well. 
Now they're Christians and they have presented themselves to God as living sacrifices. And now Paul says, once you've done that, understand that God wants to use you as a model citizen, not as a protester. God wants to use you as one who is obedient to the law, not as lawless, not as a lawless one. And what Paul is saying, in essence, is that committed Christians don't rebel against their government. They submit to it. A new life means a new relationship with the government. That's quite a challenge considering the policies of our present government. But God's word is quite clear. Pastor Steve Kreloff will continue this message on the Christian's response to government on the next Verse by Verse. These Bible classes of the air are produced by Verse by Verse Ministries. Look us up on the web at versebyverseradio.org. You've been listening to Verse by Verse, sponsored by Verse by Verse Ministries. This program was pre-recorded. To learn more, including how to donate to this ministry, visit versebyverseradio.org. That's Verse by Verse. W262CP, 